1: What? Oh my goodness! (laughs) Wow! Oh my god! What is that? Wow! Oh my god! Radiolab. Whoa! Adventures on the edge of what we think we know.
0: Hi, I'm Lauren. And I'm Hannah, and this is BioEats World, where we talk about all the ways that our ability to engineer biology and re-engineer healthcare is changing the future. And this episode is all about the healthcare of sea turtles. That's certainly a take on healthcare we haven't covered before. Our conversation covers how new advances in science and technology are leading to a new understanding of not just treating sea turtles when they get sick or injured, but more about their biology, their behavior, and how they interact with the world around them. I talked to Max Poliak, director of rehabilitation at Loggerhead Marine Life Center in Juneau Beach, Florida, about everything from treating boat injuries with sea turtle-specific prosthetics, to using cutting-edge human therapeutics on these animals in new ways, to the unique immune systems of these 2,000-pound leatherbacks, and how the microbiome of the sea turtle may answer one of the most intriguing mysteries about how these turtles behave. But what I loved about this episode most of all was learning what sea turtle health can teach us about how we are all linked and about the health of the whole ocean. Maybe you can give us a, a bit of the lay of the land of when we started treating sea turtles, essentially sea turtle healthcare. right? When did that begin? And where are we in our ability to treat sea turtles today?
1: It actually started with a single event. And not just sea turtles, but all marine animals that are seen in in a, in a medical setting today. And it started with the passing of the Endangered Species Act in 1974. That's kind of where the genesis of marine animal medicine and sea turtle medicine specifically started. So they became threatened and endangered. Encounters with with humans, uh, whether it was motorcraft, fishing nets, and, and things like that, people fishing, uh, recreational anglers. So those kinds of cases became a more prominent feature of of kind of our coastal uh, landscape. And as that happened, there was a need that developed to uh, to build facilities around caring for them and, and learning as much as we can about them. And so that's how sea turtle medicine started. It was biologists that were the very first to begin to ask questions on a population health Mm -hmm. level. You know, sea turtles uh, hold a a real biological niche, a micro niche, actually. There are very few marine reptiles on the face of the planet. um, And so little is known about about them as organisms and certainly in terms of their, their medical care. So a lot has uh, has transpired over the last couple of decades.
0: Why is it that we knew so little? Is it because they're difficult to study or because those encounters were fewer and farther between What before that?
1: Part of it is that they're very, very difficult to study uh, in their natural uh, environment in, in the oceans. Most of them are what are called pelagic swimmers, so they're constantly swimming all over the world. Mm. So they don't simply inhabit a very small area. So some do, and some life stages certainly do. But as a as a general rule, the species themselves they, they're swimming all over the world, and it's tough to to get a handle on on their population and health dynamics. As a result, And you know they their reproductive biology is such that. Um, we know that they nest and we know that they have quite profound fidelity to the to the nesting grounds um, that they were hatched on. So they mm-hmm. come back, the moms do. But even even the reproductive behavior and biology of these species, it, it, it's very challenging to to study them on that level.
0: Interesting. So the more we interacted with them, the more coastal population growth we had, the more interactions we had with them, the more injured they got. So we had to figure out how to treat them better, but it also gave us an opportunity to study them in a way that
1: we hadn't before. Exactly. And that continues to this day. Yeah. It's a very interesting situation with these species from a medical point of view, because the very basics of the physiology of these organisms, things that were worked out in humans and in other animals decades and decades mm-hmm. ago, you know, at the beginning of the, of the last century and, and in the twenties, thirties, forties, et cetera, they weren't worked out in sea turtles. Like what? like uh, for example, how does uh, the physiology of the gastrointestinal tract actually work mm-hmm. meaning which cells do what in different segments how 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 do they respond to to an input like ingesting food things like that very basic physiology questions. Mm-hmm that were never really answered.
0: So what did it look like back then in the seventies? I mean, what was that sort of like early? So at the
1: very beginning uh, it was really very, very basic. You know, you'd get an animal that was injured, struck by a boat a propeller or something like that strands on shore, you bring it up uh, to your facility, you know, you'd be lucky to get some fluids in it, try to stabilize it, bandage up uh, and treat the, the wounds that you're able to treat
0: yeah, it sounds like wartime triage almost. <laughs> yeah.
1: It was and it was really very much like a field hospital uh situation. Keep in mind, you know, these are these are massive animals, uh several hundred pounds and and they're wild animals. So, and when wild animals are injured, they're even more dangerous than they are in their natural habitat. So, it's not like a dog or a cat uh, mm-hmm. dealing with that. It's, you know, it's it's a challenge independent of the injury. So, all of those things were were were, were Things that vets had to had to deal with early on, and and the medicine and the, and, the, and the and the techniques simply weren't there.
0: I'm even thinking about as you're talking and thinking about the difficulties of wrangling these enormous creatures. I mean, how would one even know how to anesthetize them if you had so little knowledge about how, you know, how their systems worked?
1: The initial approach was that these species did not really feel pain or react in the same way that a mammal would. Hmm. So there really wasn't very much effort at all to sort of anesthetize or, or apply pain management type of uh, principles and so forth, because quite frankly, people didn't understand the physiology and and they didn't react as though they, they felt any discomfort in many ways. And that that exists to this day too. They're just very, very different in that respect. Um, So initially there really wasn't very much of anything. It was just sort of providing basic stabilization techniques, stop the bleeding, mm-hmm. you know, stabilize them, make sure the heart rate is stable, et cetera, that, you know, they're breathing okay. And, and then go from there mm-hmm. and then just kind of let them heal on their own and, and hope for the best mm-hmm. and then release them if they made it.
0: And is that true that they don't feel pain the same way or exhibited or has our understanding grown since then?
1: Oh, it's grown uh, tremendously. Yeah. They, they have um, a number of the same pain receptors that mammals have, including us but they also have receptors that differ. Hmm. So they, they, they experience pain and they can process pain. How they process it is not entirely clear. So the, the drugs, for example, available to us to use in, in other species and in, in, and in human medicine, they're available to us uh, in sea turtle medicine um, as well. And we use them, but we're not sure if they have the same effect that they have in these other species. So it's, it's a challenge, but we always assume they have the same level of discomfort that there's a procedure that might uh, impart discomfort. So we work along uh, th- those guidelines, but we don't know for sure what really is going on.
0: So in terms of both the treatment and what we know, where have we come since those field hospitals? What does it look like today when you're providing sea turtles healthcare?
1: It, it's an en- entirely different landscape now. We're able to characterize disease processes much better. We're able to understand the sources of those diseases much, much better. Um, In terms of treatment and therapy, we can apply many of the very same molecular techniques that are applied in, in other species and in human medicine to our patients.
0: When you look back, what were the kind of key breakthroughs that brought us to a different place today?
1: It has to do with just the thinking, or not even thinking, living outside of the box of some of the early scientists and clinicians, hmm. you had to look in kind of the very niche parts of human medicine or the very, very kind of, uh, nichey parts of, of, veterinary medicine and other species ah. and find, you know what I see a disease process in my sea turtle patient. It kind of looks a little bit like this in a person. Let me research that more. And let me try to find you know, the therapy in the, in the human condition and apply it to my patient and see if it works. And a lot of it was trial and trial and error and trial and error. Some of the, our sort of mainstream therapies now in sea turtle medicine came from um, the human medical side uh, in exactly that way. So the genomics and those types of uh, characterizing the molecular makeup of these species certainly contributes a lot, but in terms of the actual cutting edge uh, therapeutics, It's re- it was really individuals that had really great clinical intuition and had knowledge of, of so many different species and different disciplines. One of the godfathers of sea turtle medicine, uh, Dr. Charlie Manier, we were faced with uh, patients that were stranding with acute toxicoses. Mm-hmm. And these turtles were intoxicated by red tide blooms here in Florida. And there was no way to treat these animals. We were losing about 90% of them. And they would present with uh very sort of specific neurological uh deficits so he realized in his reading of the literature of all of all different disciplines of medicine that something very similar happens in humans who who are recovering from drug addiction and specifically opioid addiction
0: oh my gosh
1: yeah and so the therapy used in humans which uh detoxifies them rapidly which is called interlipid emulsion therapy which is basically the delivery of a, of a type of a f- uh, soluble fat, um, into the bloodstream. Uh, and that, 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 binds toxin. He applied that to our sea turtle patients that were suffering from, um, um, these acute toxicoses. And it turned out, uh, that it worked wonderfully well on a level of curative wow. types of results within six to eight hours.
0: Oh my gosh. And almost magical. Yeah, yeah.
1: They would sort of reanimate and wake up and then these neurological signs would be gone. So that's an example, kind of of you know, human drug addiction medicine applied to uh, you know sea turtle toxicosis and, and therapy related to that.
0: So cool.
1: Yeah, this is a good one too. Uh, one of the problems we have in sea turtle medicine is that there is a development of multi-drug resistant pathogens in these species, and we don't know uh, why that occurs. But it's a problem that's sufficiently uh, difficult and challenging that it required sort of You know, again, thinking kind of way out of the box. And some astute uh, sea turtle vets work with uh, vets from other species and human doctors, medical doctors, to come up with a solution that is used in other species and also in human medicine, but very experimentally. And that is the uh, application of activated mesenchymal stem cells Hmm. in combination with antibiotic therapy to knock out these highly resistant bacterial pathogens. So it's also gives us insight into how that same mechanism might be working in people and in other species, because there are increasingly so very dangerous, multi-drug resistant pathogens um, emerging around the world. And antibiotics are not uh, available increasingly so to treat them. So they become superbugs. And these things are potentially very, very, very scary and very dangerous. So this is a therapy that may have implications um, across the board for for uh, other species and for humans as well, potentially, but to, in a nutshell, kind of mitigate the the risk of these superbugs from getting developing in the first place and then getting out of hand if they do.
0: That's incredible. So, you know, an injured sea turtle comes in versus you know, that had some kind of interaction with the speedboat, what can we do that's different today versus, you know, detecting and understanding and intervening in disease? What, you know, what are the kind of different categories of uh, where are we in those different categories and what can we do?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So sea turtle vets are are such a niche field that we kind of have to act as our own, you know, cardiologists, neurologists, nephrologist, all in one. So an animal comes in that was hit by a boat and is hemorrhaging badly and so forth. So obviously a sea turtle has, is covered with a shell, you know, getting an X-ray or getting a CT or getting an MRI of an animal that has the anatomy, uh, like a sea turtle is very, very challenging.
0: Oh my gosh. I never thought about that. Yeah. So the shell makes it super difficult to see what's going on. huh?
1: Yeah. It's really difficult. And it's layer upon layer upon layer of different tissues so describing the injuries internal to a stranded turtle that comes in on emergency, just at the very beginning of the process is very, very challenging.
0: So what do you guys do? How do you do you just combine all those different technologies and learn how to see in a different way patterns?
1: Yeah, exactly. So we will take our patients once they're stabilized to um, the local human hospital. And that's what we do here. Uh-huh. So we go to um, uh, to their CT and they have different Kind of models, you know, depending on on the animal's needs, and then the MRIs and so forth, and we work with a human radiologists to get the studies done and then interpret them, and then us on the sea turtle medicine side will will work on the treatment plan and the therapeutics. That's
0: so interesting. So it's like a multidisciplinary effort from the very beginning.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. The staff love it in the hospital.
0: I can imagine. I'm imagining a sea turtle like being wheeled down the halls of the hospital. I mean, it's incredible.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it is. Yeah, they get like an escort and it's, uh, it's, it's quite a big deal. And it's the same at sort of hospitals, you know, around the country that do this. It's a great synergy of knowledge and expertise and cooperation. I mean, everyone wants to save endangered species. Yeah. And I think there's something un- unique about sea turtles people are drawn to. Mm. Everywhere I've been around the world, it's the same reaction. There's this natural draw to them. And it's quite profound. So,
0: are there new technologies or tools that are coming out now that are helping with that diagnostics moment when an injured turtle comes in?
1: It's amazing what what can be done on the on the radiology on the advanced imaging side, and um, it's a game changer in terms of what we're able to do. They can reconstruct the animal in a in a three D format, kind of floating around in space. Mm. So, on my screen. I can see my patient now, in and from every single angle, internally, externally, you know the extent of the injury, what I'm dealing with, uh, what what my treatment plan is going to begin to start to look like. They can even reconstruct the inside of, uh, for example, the gastrointestinal tract, like a fly through colonoscopy without actually doing a colonoscopy. Incredible. So I'm able to see, you know, inside the lungs, looking for disease in the lungs, looking for disease in the GI tract, which are two Kind of central organ systems where there uh, is a lot of disease. I mean, it's it's I can't even describe to you how important these types of advanced diagnostics are into treating these endangered species.
0: You have a human expert and a sea turtle expert, and you have the technology that allows you to see what you need to see. Although you're, it sounds like it still requires the be- the best of all experts to understand that, but. So when it's an injury, are there other new options on how we can actually, you know, how we can treat trauma like that?
1: So what the, this imaging can can provide for us is the extent of damage internal to the animal. And I mentioned the GI tract and the lung, those organ systems are are usually the ones that get hit by a propeller mm-hmm. strike when the animal's at the surface and so forth. So you can imagine those are two vital organ systems, and then they start to heal in a kind of a malformed way. Hmm. And when that happens, uh, pockets of tissue and and pockets of air, gas form within the shell of the animal and they get walled off and the animal then can't swim normally. It can't dive normally. And so it can't be a normal sea turtle. And it starts to get weaker and weaker and weaker in a state of chronic debilitation, we call it. And it's a very, very dangerous period of time for the animal. Very often we'll be faced with a question and a problem that has really no solution, Mm. largely related to the specific anatomy of the animal. So if I want to do surgery on a sea turtle, I can't just cut the shell open and start looking around and fixing things. It doesn't work like that. Right. In and then
0: staple it back until it heals. Yeah. Exactly.
1: Yeah. So the disease process is called a buoyancy disorder. Mm. So they have an inappropriate buoyancy that where they float around on the top. If I did, for example, endoscopic surgery, I attempted that in this type of a situation. It really doesn't do very much. You can't really fix that and potentially making it way, way worse. Mm-hmm. So what we had started to do was apply weights to the external shell top shell of the animal it's called the carapace so a small dive weight for example would be applied to try to get the animal to begin to swim normally again it creates a little pivot sort of in a different spot on their body so that the the lungs can ventilate and inflate normally again And they can use their muscles, which the front flippers are really the huge muscles and and, and structures that that allow the animal to propel itself through the water. When they're floating inappropriately, all of those muscles start to work differently Mm. and the lungs start to inflate differently. So all of these pathologies start to add up and add up. And then they start to learn to be in an abnormal state as a normal state. And that can never be something that they are able to be released with. Mm. So those animals have been permanent in permanent captivity. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of them. This is a huge problem around the world. Wow. Fluency disorder related secondary to a boat strike. So obviously you can't release a turtle with a dive weight on its, on its shell. We thought, okay, why don't we try to conceptually put that weight inside the animal internal to it.
0: This counterweight basically. That's what it
1: is. It's exactly what it is. Mm -hmm. It's a counterweight that that changes the lever arm, kind of the physics, that's the physics behind it, of the animal in the water to, to, to create a neutral buoyancy for the animal. So then it can therefore surface normally, dive normally, mate normally, feed normally, all of that. So we needed to create a neutral buoyancy. So we started to think about medical device implants, like the type of things you would get if you needed a new hip or a new knee or something like that. Mm. And there were two challenges there. One, so where do you put this implant and how much does it need to weigh? Most of those implants that you find for dogs and, and horses and people and so forth are very light. That's the point. You want them to be very you know, light and not adding any weight or drag to the the, the person or the animal getting it. But we, we wanted the opposite. We, we needed something dense and that was very heavy uh, per square centimeter, so to speak, so that it would add that kind of extra weight internal to the animal because mm-hmm. you can't change it. Once you put it in, that's that.
0: Is it different for every sea turtle, presumably?
1: Yeah. yeah. There's not a one size fits all by any means. You have to refine that external weight, the one that's taped to its back or adhered to its back uh, top of its shell. You start at, say, let's say seven ounces, and then you go to seven and a half or down to six and a half, and you do that over time. Mm. So it takes a few months to get that perfect weight. We also got this question a lot from, for example, from regulators, fish and wildlife regulators, like, well, when the turtle grows, what's going to happen with the weight?
0: Right. They become bigger. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. They become bigger. So that's where it was really key to get the location correct. And so we couldn't just stick it in anywhere because if, as they grew, the weight would not grow with them. So the pelvis location, the pelvic uh, girdle area where we chose ultimately to to place the implant turned out to be the ideal spot Mm. because the pelvis uh, is going to grow linearly with the spine and will continue to grow linearly as the animal gets older and larger.
0: So it keeps moving. So it essentially moves with the turtle, but it stays where it needs to be in the center of the turtle's gravity.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So that lever arm, that pivot and the lever arm on top of that pivot is constantly moving very slowly, but moving with the animal as it grows. And the animal's musculature is adjusting and its pulmonary anatomy, you know, to ventilate it, to breathe and so forth is also adjusting very, very slowly as it's growing as well to that to the new um, location of that weight. Wow! This is the type of physics you learn, like in you know, basically freshman <laughs> high school physics. <laughs> right. But it, yeah, but it applies in this case in a perfect way. And we're just at the beginning of this. I mean, it's the first few being done now, and and we're really excited about perfecting the technique and getting these animals released and then tracking them with satellite transmitters to see how they perform and how they behave in the water back home once they're released um, into the ocean. If all goes well, then, you know, we can roll it out slowly to sea turtle uh, hospitals and colleagues around the world.
0: Okay, so can you talk a little bit about that, how that tends to work, tracking the animals after they get treated? Is this the game changer that makes it possible to release and study sea turtles in their natural behavior patterns?
1: Yeah, it's fascinating. Collaboration really between veterinarians and and biologists and people who work in the sort of the satellite tracking field in general. So the animal is released after all the rehabilitation and the surgeries done and so forth, and, and they're medically cleared. They're released off of uh, usually the beaches where they stranded, mm-hmm. so kind of waters that they're comfortable in, and 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 should be used to. And then the satellite tag is attached to the to the top of their shell. And then they are tracked for about two years. That's about the length of time um, the most advanced satellite tracking devices will perform. Hmm. And we watch we watch it very closely. We watch that this device will measure water temperature. It'll, it'll measure the depth that they dive. It'll measure the length of time that they're diving and staying underwater. It'll measure pH of the ocean. So it measures a uh, lots of little things. Amazing. And there's continuing yeah a technology t- that's adding to those different indices that we can measure um, with these little tiny devices um so it's it, so far with all of the advanced treatment and therapies that we're able to apply to animals being released back home they're all doing really really well they're all going to locations that they're supposed to be going their foraging grounds etc they're diving and surfacing and resting and swimming doing all the normal behaviors that we want to see. And in fact, we're learning a lot about behaviors that they're exhibiting compared to non-injured animals.
0: It's funny because while you're talking, I'm thinking about like, in some ways that's more sophisticated than what happens to humans after we have major surgery, right? We we check in with our doctor and we're like, yeah, I I think I feel okay, you know, but this kind of hurts or like whatever. It sounds so primitive compared to monitoring So much about how the turtle is behaving, where it is, what its you know environment is like, and you really get a much more clear picture of whether the turtle is healthy again.
1: That's kind of the goal is to be able to track them for that exact purpose, but also because so little is Mm -hmm. known, we just don't know very much, and secondarily, you know, they're they're an, an endangered species, so there are a lot of resources that are really targeted at at learning on a maximal level every single thing we could possibly learn uh, um in every step of the way while they're in treatment and then once they're released so it's you know a concerted proactive effort to to do that to harness and to to get as much information as we can
0: so given that we're learning so much more now thanks to things like this that allow us to understand more about the turtles behaviors and and environments are is that also changing how we treat and understand disease in their and bi- their biology, or where are we, you know, in that different kind of um, medical treatment? What is it that we're learning, you know, that these different types of treatment is teaching us about the sea turtle, you know, generally?
1: So, one of the things that sea turtles have taught us is, is, you know, their immune systems are amazing. They've been around for so long, and they've they've had to deal with uh, and recognize things that are you know, harmful for a very long time. So their immune systems have seen everything.
0: Incredible. I mean,
1: dinosaurs, meteor strikes, uh, ice ages, all these things, <laughs> they've experienced everything and they've survived it unchanged. So what their immune system has developed is a kind of a state of tolerance. In contrast to our immune systems, where we'll, you know, we'll have cells that will identify a virus or a bacteria, remember it and kill it and, and be very specific about it. Sea turtles' immune system is more like, okay, It'll recognize something as foreign. It's not really causing too much trouble. I'm just going to let it be. I'm not going to really fight it off. And I'll build like a tolerance, kind of a standoff relationship that it's not going to, I'm not going to let it hurt me, but I'm not going to go overboard and trying to kill it off. And so they they have existed like this for for eons. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a really interesting evolutionary approach to to an immune system as a kind of a physiologic um, entity.
0: Yeah. It's like a a totally different kind of system approach than what we do where it's like an on off, like a constant sort of back and forth.
1: Yeah. And it's more of a generalist approach versus like battle ready cells and, and molecules that are very, very specific to identifying and killing a pathogen.
0: Is there a way in which that connection to how their immune system behaves could benefit understanding more about the human immune system? Or is it or do they just seem like two to- totally separate universes
1: it's two separate universes but just like all universes there is a link somewhere <laughs> and the key is finding the key is finding where is that mm-hmm. link are they within the same realm or are they just tangentially touching each other or what there there, there are cell lines that we have uh, in, in humans in, in the immune system that are identical to cell lines that are in sea turtles but we don't know what the, the, those cell lines do in sea turtles. They don't do the same thing that they do for humans. We know that, but they're identical. So what do they do? Why are they there? You know, so, uh, you know, nature doesn't just have things superfluously laying around. She uses it for something. And so there's a lot of research on that on that level, too, to figure out what's going on um, in the sea turtle's immune system that we, we potentially might learn from and potentially a lot because they've been around for Mm -hmm. so long long and have seen so many different pathogens throughout the eons and been successful at evading them. So so as we start to get more information and more techniques to learn about these disease processes in these animals, and the more we learn about their immune systems, the more we can start to have an impact in areas of disease that we see very often, like gastrointestinal disease, and, and specifically What happens to the microbiome Mm -hmm. in these animals during treatment, um, under normal conditions? And what does that mean for them as a species? And what does it mean for their health, um, the health of the oceans, actually, and by consequence, the health of the planet? We say that the sea turtle tells us the health of the oceans and the ocean tells us the health of the planet.
0: So the sea turtle's microbiome might hold the secret to the entire ocean. That's beautiful.
1: And the microbiome is, to use a prefix micro, again, a microcosm of what happens in an individual animal, but it's reflective of the entire ecosystem in which it lives. And and that's Mm -hmm. the ocean, which is the largest ecosystem on on Earth. And we're we're learning a lot about the microbiome and how, and this is in the case in humans too, how these organisms communicate with each other and how they communicate using our own nervous system to communicate directly to our central nervous system, to our brain and to our heart. These organisms are chemically talking to the turtle's own kind of larger physiologic systems via the nervous system. And they're having this chatter and this orchestra of of, of communication with each other and with with the host that Ah. they're in. So when there's a disruption in the GI tract, and those organisms uh, are in a state of dysbiosis, it's called, or they're out of balance, that message, that chemical message is also sent to the animal's central Mm -hmm. nervous system and other organ Mm -hmm. systems. And so they react usually in a pathologic way to that. So so an animal becomes sick uh, largely by, if it's mediated by the GI tract, by signaling that starts among these these microbes in, that reside in the GI tract.
0: So a similar connection to maybe some of the things we're starting to think about in humans, like that Parkinson's could have some relationship to the GI.
1: Oh yeah. It's not just Parkinson's. There's a whole host of disease yeah. processes that we never we never considered that they could be mediated by the microbiome. I mean, it's, it's, it's a whole new level of medicine that's that's being launched on that level.
0: So it sounds like the microbiome is becoming a hugely important area for understanding the sea turtles, overall health and behavior.
1: Yeah. There's some, there are some things that are really fascinating that the microbiome and research into it is starting to elucidate for us. And, you know, the microbiome doesn't just exist inside the GI tract. The microbiome also exists on the outside, the skin Mm -hmm, and so forth on the mm -hmm. shell, but also we're finding that there's a specific group of organisms that exist in and around the eyes of sea turtles and in that portion of their skull. Wow. And that microbe, that class of microbes is very specific in the sense that it has internal to it a metallic feature. They're called magnetobacteria, but they're fascinating for this reason. You know, one of the things that's always fascinated people who study sea turtles is how do they come back to the same beach that they hatched from? How is that possible? Right. You know, there was all of this talk about imprinting of the the Earth's magnetic field on their brain in some way, but there was never anything, there was never there there, so to speak. There was no anatomical feature that could be pointed to and say, yep, there it is. That's how they do it. Until perhaps now, it's not an anatomical feature, but it is an organism that lives within the animal in its rostrum, in its its nose and kind of skull area and, and its eyes. Very recently, someone suggested that, you know, they may be acting as little tiny compasses for the animal so that it can navigate, you know, these vast oceans with a high degree of specificity. Like a
0: tiny iron compass needle
1: that's how that's how the latest research is speculating, and it's got some pretty good evidence to back it up that these living bacteria they will mediate navigation for these species. What happens when a sea turtle or any species for that matter gets an antibiotic, and what happens is the the microbiome gets disturbed profoundly, and sometimes it can get wiped out mm-hmm. so we were wondering with our patients when they are treated with antibiotics and we have to think about preserving their microbiome in their GI tract, do do the antibiotics also affect these magnetobacteria that provide potentially a type of compass for these species as they navigate? And so if they're released into the wild and those microbes are disturbed, is the animal unable to navigate as a result? Well, when they're released and there's a satellite tab placed on them, we get to watch what happens to them behaviorally. There's a period of time At the very initial part of the release, it's about 10 days or two weeks where they kind of seem disoriented. Hmm. They kind of zig and zag. And and so we thought, well, they're just getting used to being back in the ocean again, getting their bearings. Mm -hmm. But it may be that these magnetobacteria need that time to replenish in the animal itself. And when we look at, at the microbiome of the GI tract after it's been disturbed by antibiotic therapy... We discovered that once the antibiotic therapy is 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 ended and the microbiome can begin to restore itself, it takes about 10 days to two weeks to happen in the GI tract. So the same time period occurs kind of in this suggestive case of the navigational link to the microbiome as well. So it's really fascinating to see it it can have an impact um, on the animal and on our patients in such in so many different ways, not just from its GI health. But also in its ability to navigate its its natural environment.
0: Is there any possible implication then that that's kind of how we navigate too? Like that's why you, maybe my my iron <laughs> fillings aren't as good as somebody else. <laughs> you yeah, right. yeah, right. Is that or is it ridiculous yeah. to draw those kinds of comparisons?
1: No, no, no. What's so uh, the likelihood that we have magnetobacteria that are assisting us in navigation is right now is quite low it's it's not it's not out of the realm of possibility mm-hmm. but it's quite low the likelihood but what is highly likely is that there is some other adaptation we might have of a microbiological ecosystem and community that affords us a, a sense or ability to interact with our environment that we're not even aware of and so if that is removed or damaged in some way that that ecosystem it may not only be a feature of diminishing our health, but it may be a feature of diminishing our ability to navigate our environment, not meaning walk one foot in right. front of the other, but but things like mental mental disease and and, and things like right.
0: some way that we interact with the broader world gets disrupted as well. Yeah.
1: Exactly. And then it, it becomes a permanent feature if that ecosystem is permanently disturbed, so to speak. These types of questions are being asked by scientists and and medical folks in all different disciplines, you know, and we're doing it for sure in sea turtle medicine, but we have this kind of really kind of alien-like species we work with, you know, and they have these these other creatures on them, this microbiome that functions in just an amazingly fascinating way. That's
0: so cool. It draws such an incredible picture of... You know, not just helping these creatures that have experienced so much, and the knowledge and potential learning that 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 they can sort of in turn inspire, and in how potentially our biology. So, Max, what would you say is the biggest thing that these innovations in sea turtle medicine and how we treat them and how we understand them is is sort of unlocking in the future for all of us?
1: Not just a sea turtle to the ocean, not just uh, the ocean to to the dolphin, not just the the dolphin to the manatee and potentially to uh, a terrestrial animal, but we are all linked. We're all linked. When rain develops and water evaporates from the ocean, the very same things that the sea turtle is exposed to in their natural environment falls on the earth somewhere else. Hmm. And we're exposed to it by extension, right. So we're linked. We're linked on on so many levels, not just uh, by proximity geographically, but we're le- we're linked on a molecular level with all of these organisms, kind of moving in and out of species across the globe. So the same types of issues that we find and we treat in sea turtles potentially have implications for our own health, and we don't even know it. Mm-hmm. And it's also vice versa. What happens in in the human microbiome, again, on that example, can affect the health of not just an individual sea turtle, or knowledge of that of that health, but the species and the ocean health in general. So it's the the, the great gift of of practicing sea turtle medicine, is that it gives us this amazing view of how um, how intricately interrelated all of these systems are. All of these physiologies are and all of these, these organisms are from, a, from the microscopic all the way up to the 2,000-pound leatherback. And it's, it's just a fascinating field to study.
0: Thanks so much for joining us on BioEats World. If you'd like to hear more about all the ways biology is technology, please go subscribe to the A16Z bio newsletter at a16z.com newsletter. And of course, subscribe to BioEats World anywhere you listen to podcasts.